Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And in most places outside of the United States, elementary schools are seen as a place of safety, as a place of growth and learning and laughter, right? It's kind of a place where you would never suspect to find evil. How could you? It's a place that young kids should feel comfortable and safe enough to learn all the things that they need in order to live happy, fulfilling lives in the future. But in the parking lot of Foothills Elementary School, there was a white van parked. And I feel like that always gave me anxiety as a kid. White vans, we've heard the horror stories of what happens if someone takes you in their white van. Even now as an adult, the sight of a white van parked next to my car gives me just anxiety and full-blown panic at times. But this time, it wasn't about who was in the van. It was about who was under the van. Mm -hmm. Even at a distance, it was easy for the police to see. A woman lying naked, face down on the cold pavement under the white van. It's in the elementary school? Parking lot. They look back at the killer that led them there. And his lips, when when his eyes come across the victim and his lips curl into this small smile. He seems happy with what they did. He wanted to do this for a while. He had told his accomplice, hey, at least I'm not a virgin anymore. And they high-fived. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is a really good book on this case called A Clockwork Murder by Steve Jackson. This book is amazing in the sense that otherwise I don't think that I would have ever found out about this case, known about this case, and well, Steve, the author, he takes from a variety of sources, including court transcripts, notes, interviews. The book is really straightforward, and I mean that in the best way possible. He tells you about the case in such a way that it's it's relatable and it helps you relate with the victim from the get-go. He does an amazing job. It's truly a heartbreaking case and it's one that I just haven't been able to stop thinking about for so many reasons. I mean, just the fact that I don't understand really what was going on in their minds. I don't I can't really follow the progression of how they went from being normal people into full-blown, sadistic, torturous killers. The progression for me is, it's confusing, and it's scary because it's like this unknown thing. It's insane. So please go check out the book. It's the best deep dive on the case out there that you're going to find, and it's not a really well, widely talked about case. So what's the big deal with virginity? I read an article recently titled, The Value Placed on Virginity is One of History's Biggest Travesties. And when you really think about it, it is a tad bit strange. Your virginity is not actually something that can be traded, given, stolen, or lost. And almost always, girls are the ones that bear the consequences of this whole virginity thing. There's actually no scientific way to prove that someone has quote-unquote lost their virginity. No doctor could look at anyone, regardless of their gender, and tell you with scientific proof that they are or are not a virgin. Nothing physiologically changes. Sure, you could argue that a woman's hymen is broken, you know, but hymens could also be torn by exercise, masturbation, for no freaking reason at all. And the very same medical examination you're doing could tear your hymen. 
<laughs> so literally just about any reason under the sun and your hymen could be torn. Now, mentally and emotionally, you can change from good and bad experiences, maybe trauma, maybe a breakup, a betrayal, but there is no link just between quote, losing one's virginity to any psychological changes. So literally nothing happens in the body to say, hey, something's changed now. So truly, I could announce tomorrow that I'm a virgin and no doctor could bet their license that I'm not by examining me. So what I'm trying to say is it's not a big deal, okay? I'm not saying you should go out there and have sex for the first time with someone random unless you want to. I'm saying you shouldn't be judged for having had sex before or never having had sex at all. None of it really matters. But still in 2022, we make girls feel like once they lost it, it's gone forever. It's something you'll never get back. And in a lot of situations, their value as a human goes down because now they've lost something. That means something has been subtracted from them, which means they're not as whole and full and pure. And boys are taught, you better lose it sooner rather than later. Or else people are going to wonder, what's wrong with you? You're not man enough to lose it? Yeah, that is a kind of a... A catch-22, yeah. yeah. Why, why is boys treated like... You should lose it ASAP versus girls yeah. the other way around. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's just dangerous. I mean, not just for mental health, but in the world of crime, because someone just might be willing to kill to lose their virginity. That's literally today's case. Listen, the investigators working this case had seen a lot. They had heard a lot. They were not easily spooked or shocked. But when they were sitting there in front of these two guys, which, by the way, they were separated while they were being questioned, but there was two of them. They were so-called best friends and killers. Now, the police, they were shaking on the inside. Everything about these two was terrifying. Every part about their story, though the way that their cold eyes stared straight at the investigators, the flat tone of their voice while they relived one of the most gruesome crimes that the detectives have ever heard of. Lucas told officers in a flat tone, after she died, George asked me if I wanted to have sex with her again. And then George suggested we cut off all of her private parts and take it home with us. And the officers are sitting there, poker face, but they, they wanted to cry. They wanted to throw up. They couldn't stomach this confession any longer. The details of how depraved one must be to do something like this. The only time that the killer showed any sort of emotions during the entirety of the interrogation was when there was a knock on the door. Oh, are those the Egg McMuffins? I'm starving. Everything was this flat tone. And then we did this. And then we did. Oh, shoot. Are those the Egg McMuffins? Oh, thank God. They were excited to eat. They showed genuine emotion over a freaking McMuffin, a breakfast sandwich, not over the life of a human being. There were a lot of people that would not be able to stomach their food after seeing what George and Lucas had done. A lot of them were residents of a local apartment building. They had witnessed a kidnapping. And there was nothing that they could do to stop it. This, this sounds like a traumatic nightmare for a lot of people. This is not one of those bystander effect stories where the neighbors are looking out their window, seeing someone being kidnapped and thinking, well, look at all these heads bobbing out the windows and balconies. Ah, I'm sure one of my good old neighbors is calling the police already. No, it started with this loud, high-pitched scream. And this is a pretty big ap apartment complex, by the way. Residents started popping their heads curiously out from their windows, their balconies. They look down and they see below them two men, George and Lucas, yanking their victim violently, pulling her into the back of their car. The residents are screaming out their window, let her go, let her go right now. A ton of them are diving over their couch to grab their phones. They're trying to call 911. Let her go, we're calling the cops. Some neighbors are scribbling down the license plates of the car. 
for almost a minute, which honestly is a, is a very long time. Residents saw George punching the victim in the face repeatedly for an entire minute. A few men rushed on their slippers. They ran out their unit door all the way down to try and help, but they were too late. The car was gone. With all three people, the victim was in the car. By then, George and Lucas would be gone to live out their fantasy with their victim. So you're like, who are these guys? I'm, I, what, what is this progression into killers? I mean, everybody starts as a little infant, a little newborn that is so helpless and can't do anything for themselves. How did they turn into these evil human beings? Let's start with George. George is a sniffer. Yeah, a sniffer. I said it, okay? He had this very interesting habit where he had to sniff anything and everything around him. Not just the things that smell good, not just food. I mean, these are all very normal things to do. Like when you're in a store, you see a scented candle. It's almost a contractual obligation for you to sniff it. Is it not? Right? Like you gotta, you gotta have a scent, right? Mm -hmm. But George would sniff anything that was put into his hand. It's the first thing that he did. You hand him a pen to write with, he will sniff it. You hand him your phone because he has to borrow it, he will sniff it. Maybe you hand him your keys to help lock up the apartment, he will sniff it. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've never heard that before. I've never heard it either. It's so fascinating. If you pass by him, he might push out his neck like a little ostrich. And yeah, he's going to sniff you. He's like a dog. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder, does he, do you think people like that have a heightened sense of smell and that's why they want to sniff things? I feel like it's more than just heightened sense of it. Because you have a really good sense of smell. Yeah, I don't. But you're not trying to smell anything, right? I only sniff things that I suspect smell really good and oddly smell really bad. (laughs) I don't know. It's fascinating. Listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this habit, but let's be real. The guy is a sniffer, okay? He's sniffing everything. Anyway, George Walt was born in South Korea. His dad, Bill, was a U.S. Army man, and his mom was a young Korean woman that ended up getting pregnant with George. So this guy's half 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 Korean. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if his parents were in love, if this was a one night stand, which I heard is very um, common amongst army men, U.S. Army men and Korean women, or if it was a fling. But they thought, all right, Songi is her name. Your belly is not getting any smaller. Let's just get married. And they do when she's eight months pregnant. A month later, baby George is born. And for the first five years of his life, George was the apple of his mom's eye. He was raised mainly by his mom and his Korean side of the family, since his dad is always at the base, right? Now, George did not actually speak English till he started going to school. He went to this international school, didn't speak a single word of English, which honestly is so relatable. Okay, the only funny part is I grew up thinking everyone in America spoke Korean. I thought it was English. I went to school and I was like, oh, wow, what is this weird noise they're making? I can't communicate with anyone. My mom did not even give me a heads up. (laughs) So this is probably what George was feeling. It's really a confusing day, I tell you. So anyway, Songi was a bit of an overbearing mom. She loved her son to a fault. She was obsessed with his appearance. She wanted little Georgie to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, not have a tiny little hair misplaced on his tiny little head. Everything had to be perfect. She even entered him into children's beauty contest. He won a lot of them. But George wasn't the only child. The couple went on to have another son named Eric. Nobody really talks about Eric. No, literally. He kind of became like this forgotten child. Songi didn't care for him as much. George was the golden boy and nothing was going to change that. He was the kid that looked the best. He won the beauty pageants. He was the one that made her proud. Even when it was dinner time, you would sit around the table. Songi, Bill, the dad, and Eric, they would be eating a regular normal meal. Maybe some rice, maybe some Korean side dishes, maybe a soup on the side. 
But on George's plate, he had special food, special healthy food, dates, ginseng, short ribs. He was not a normal kid. Maybe Songi thought it would make him taller, cuter, smarter, because that seemed to be what she valued the most in her son, George. That's truly all she cared about. Appearance. Yes, and I don't want to say this, but I think the timing of this story, I think there was kind of this specialness about him because he was um, he was half white. So he's winning these beauty pageants. She's like really crazy about his looks. So it was made abundantly clear who the favorite of the family was. And being special has a price. George would actually suffer more than Eric. You're like, that doesn't make sense. Okay, it should be the other way, right? And I'm not denying neglect and being tossed to the side is not traumatic. Like it is. I'm sure Eric has his fair share of trauma. But Songi was suffering from some sort of mental illness. It said that she probably had paranoid schizophrenia, or at least she was showing symptoms of it. She also had these really intense mood swings. One day, she's happy jolly, praising her. Oh my God, you are the best, best son ever. And then the next day, she would sit her golden boy down and spiral into these delusional rants for hours. He would have to comfort his mom. I mean, think about it. He's this young little boy. He's probably scared confused. Why is mom going off like this? And he's trying to calm her down. She seems emotionally riled up. It's a lot. George had no idea what to expect when he got home. Sometimes it's a happy house. Sometimes Songi would rant him. Sometimes he would get beat because he had some dirt on his shoes. She would say things like, no perfect kid has dirty shoes. I think it really affected George a lot. He started exhibiting some interesting behavior. Now, again, I'm not going to say it's alarming because I don't really know, right? I'm not a child psychologist. But for example, When George was five, he stuck his finger in a bread-making machine, and it tore off half of his finger. Now, for a long time, he had to wear a Band-Aid on that injured finger. Let's just say it's the right index finger. Well, George would sit there and put a Band-Aid on his left index finger. Even though he didn't need to, he just wanted everything to be even. Mm, Okay, that's interesting. He was raised to be obsessive over his looks, and he channeled that into this this crazy intense need to have everything be completely symmetrical. His hair would always have to be parted straight down the middle. And I'm not talking just like, ooh, middle parts are in, but he would get a comb and he would redo it and redo it until it was directly in between his nose, perfect between his eyebrows. At a young age. At a young age. Yeah, that's... That's interesting, right? Because I feel like most kids that age are out playing. They don't really care about their looks. He kept a nail clipper in his pocket at all times. He wanted his nails to be trimmed and immaculate. And of course, even on each hand. Even later as an adult, if George had an injury on any part of his body, he would put a band-aid on the corresponding side to make it perfectly even. He was also this huge germaphobe and wanted everything to be super clean. Now, things only get worse when the family starts moving around. George's dad was transferred from Korea to Germany to Indiana and finally in Colorado. So being away from Songi's family only made her mental illness get worse. She starts getting paranoid. She thinks that the neighbors, the police officers, they're all out to get her. She even accuses Bill, her husband, of cheating on her. And Bill's getting confused. Like, what are you talking about? I'm so frustrated. Why would I be cheating on you? There's no way that I can convince you that I'm not. I'm always at work. Here, Songi, why don't you talk to this therapist I got you? He thought that giving her a therapist was going to help. But instead, Songi turned around and accused him of sleeping with the therapist. She said, oh, is this, she's the mistress, huh? And the two of you are trying to get me institutionalized so you can be together and have my kids. And with all of that in the background, Songi starts taking out her anger and her anxiety onto her golden boy. George would spend hours, hours, 
every single day, making sure his appearance was perfect. But his mom would always find some sort of flaw and beat him for it. She would stand there and berate him and humiliate him for hours on end. And by the time that George was 10, he was done. He's like, I'm not going to take this anymore. He starts standing up on his own feet. I think the resentment really starts kicking in. He thought, you know what? No, I don't care. Say what you want. Do what you want. Your words don't affect me, mom. When his mom would hit him, he would laugh and say, try again. It doesn't even hurt. And it only pissed her off even more. Eventually, the power dynamic shifted so much that George would go out of his way to piss off his mom. And the two of them would get into these full-blown screaming matches where there was cursing, yelling, screaming, running, slamming doors. And you're like, okay, well, at least they have their amazing dad that's doing what he can. You know, he got his wife a therapist. It didn't work out, but he's trying, right? No, Bill was not great either. His family had a history of schizophrenia and alcoholism. You would expect him to be somewhat understanding of Songi's situation, right? No. He would straight up call his wife crazy and over-emotional, which regardless of mental health struggles or not, that's a horrible thing to do. On top of that, Bill would cheat on his wife, so she wasn't inherently wrong or crazy or over-emotional. And in fact, he would come home drinking after a late night with his army buddies. And he's tripping all over the place, drunk as can be, slurring his words, and he would just start exploding on the family. He would beat George on multiple different occasions. But of course, he would never consider that crazy or over-emotional. Bill physically abused the kids. And, you know, you're really starting to think maybe George isn't the golden boy because he got the brunt of the abuse. Or maybe they just had such a high expectation from him, so they beat him. I don't know. But on two separate occasions, the Army CPS agency, Child Protective Services, investigated allegations of abuse. Why didn't they stop the abuse, you ask? Well, both parents denied hitting their kids. They both denied the thing that if they admitted to would give them grave consequences. They both denied doing something illegal. And the CPS was like, you know what? I feel like you're pretty honest, though. Like, I feel like there's no reason for you to lie. It's just a vibe I'm getting. I think it's wild. What are you saying? So even when George goes to school, he would complain out loud in front of teachers. I hate being home because my dad just beats me. And all the teachers suddenly act like they're at a Billie Eilish concert and they can't hear anything. By the time that George is 17, he's pretty pissed off at the world. And the fact that none of his teachers, CPS, nobody did anything. So he walked his ass straight up to a cop and said, my dad has been abusing me for years now. And the police investigate and Bill's like, hell yeah, I did hit him when he was young. In the past, you know, young kids, young boys, you know, the boys be boys. Um, Yeah, when he was vulnerable, weaker, unable to fight back. Yeah, I I hit him then when he was a child. I don't do it anymore. The police are like, thank you, sir, for serving this great country. Love you. Say it back. They did nothing about it. George realized authorities are not falling over themselves to help him. So as a 17-year-old, he moves out. He moves in with his pregnant girlfriend, Becky, at 17. I feel like so far we have a ton of sympathy for George, right? We're like, okay, George, I feel you. Like, how can we help you out, right? But George is a bit weird. Let me explain. George was known as those guys that love to brag. He would tell these really big lies and think of just the most stereotypical lie a guy in high school would tell his bros. That's George. He would be like, bruh, you know, my body count is crazy. It's like 30 or something. I'm just the females. Yeah, the females literally cannot keep their hands off of me. Also, did you know last summer when I was 16, I was working as a hitman? I know. But like, don't tell anyone because I don't want people to be scared of me how'd you get a gun? Oh, I never used guns and stuff because I don't really, I don't like it, but I used to take people out using martial arts. 
I can't show you, otherwise I'm a target, but um, I can do martial arts because, you know, I'm half Korean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can all do it, the whole nation. It's true, though. Yeah, I can do it to you guys. Facts. <laughs> so George's friends, they would laugh and go along with it. They knew that he was lying about the martial arts part, probably the hitman part. They never saw him even get into a small fight with anyone. But the body count part... They were kind of believing it because George was so obsessed with sex. Obsessed, I tell you. This kid watched porn all the time. I'm not even exaggerating. He would have it playing in the background while he ate, while he did his homework, just as if it's modern family, just playing in the background. A sitcom. He started off really young. I guess his dad had porn just lying around all the time. George would pick it up and just start watching. His favorite was bondage porn or fake rape porn. And if you asked him his favorite time to have sex, he would say, oh, I love having sex right after a massive fight with my girlfriend when she's so pissed off, when I'm so pissed off, and we might even slap each other a few times. Listen, there's nothing wrong with BDSM. There's also nothing inherently wrong with watching kinky porn and wanting to have sex with your partner after a fight as long as it's consensual. That's not the concerning stuff. The concerning part comes in when you hear George talk about women in general. He would call women females. And he would say, Just side note, if George wasn't on death row, he would have an alpha male podcast right now. George would say, females, they're all bitches, you know? Only thing they're good for is fucking. And if anyone looked at him, if they raised an eyebrow or tried to argue with him, he would say, whoa, 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 take it easy. It's just a joke. Jeez, I didn't know we could make jokes. God, everyone's so sensitive. Don't get so riled up. Uh, Clearly, it's not a joke, George. Just look at the way that George treats his girlfriend, Becky. The pregnant girlfriend that he just moved in with? Well, he treated her like property. If he wanted sex, he expected her to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it, because he's a high-value man. Apparently, that's the new word for alpha male. (laughs) When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently, I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s. Because the game is set in the 1920s, it just has the most aesthetic game design ever, and it's so cozy. Whenever I need a break from the suspense, I can pause the story and head over to my private island. Yeah, they give you a private island, and you get to customize it however you want for you. I love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail. June's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when I feel overwhelmed. I can escape all of my problems and turn into Detective June. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android.
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Later, George would pin down his girlfriends, twisting their arms until they cried out in pain. And he would only stop, and this is bizarre, when they begged for him to use his big dick to have anal sex with them. I'm sorry, what? Like, if it wasn't terrifying, it would almost be comical because it's very telling of George's insecurities that he wants them to specifically say, oh, big dick, your big dick. He also took a ton of pride in being able to manipulate people and get them to do what he wanted, which, by the way, he only bragged about it. He actually wasn't that good at it. In fact, his idea of manipulation was, come on, don't be a pussy. God, you're so lame. Whatever then, loser, go home before curfew. That was his idea of manipulation. But he would brag about it. He's like, I can mind fuck anyone. Okay, George. Okay, George. <laughs> that is until Lucas Salmon came along. Yeah, that's his name, Lucas Salmon. And the two of them are George and Lucas. <sighs> it sounds like I'm making it up. Lucas and George met while working at a summer job at a telemarketing company. They were both 18. And three years later, they would violently rape and murder someone together. Now, it's interesting because these two are not what you would expect from best friends. They seem like they have nothing in common. George was addicted to porn. Lucas was a reserved Christian boy. A little bit about Lucas. He was born to parents Bob and Gail, and his family life kind of sucked, yeah. Lucas's dad made him feel like he was never good enough. The whole family operated on guilt, like they were a super strict Christian family. Even after the parents divorced, they went to a church as a family to keep up Christian appearances, which is just so toxic. Like, yeah, fine. You don't want to get divorced because of your religion. That's fine. Not my life. But imagine how confusing it is for your kids that your parents are divorced, but then you have to act like a happy little family on Sunday. And then people are asking you and you got to lie for your parents. It's just confusing. But their goody two-shoes church family aesthetic was quickly shattered when a woman accused Bob, the dad, for sexual harassment. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to skip town. I'm going to skedaddle. So he leaves. Lucas, who's eight at this point, he's lost. He's confused. He, it's said that he starts coming up with a lot of imaginary friends to cope with everything that's going on. He's just constantly talking to his imaginary friends. Originally, he was going to stay with his mom. But after a few years of being a single mom, she's like, I can't do it. You guys have to go. She ships the kids off to be with their dad. And a little side story of how IQ means nothing. Lucas had an IQ of 134, which puts him in the top 10% of the population. But regularly, not once or twice, but consistently, Lucas would leave the house and jolly skip to school only to look down and realize, ah, oh, I wore my shirt backwards. Fuck. Or not again. My shirt's inside out. Uh, 
Wait, what's going on? Like in high school, just constantly was wearing a shirt backwards or inside out. Like, I don't know. Maybe we're all doing it wrong. Maybe that's how you're supposed to wear it. I don't have an IQ of 134. What do I know? But before the kids could even notice his pattern, the family had to move again. Bob was accused of sexual harassment again. So Lucas is just moving around with his dad, Bob. Now, in my head, I'm connecting the dots. Imagine growing up with someone like Lucas's dad. There's no way in hell that he's going to be respectful towards women, right? But he was. It's a little confusing. Lucas was actually really good to women. In fact, he was really good to everyone in general. He didn't believe in sex before marriage. He wanted to live his life with good Christian beliefs. He just wanted to help people. In his free time, he went on missions building orphanages in Mexico. He didn't speak. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He hated drugs. Heck, he didn't even dare curse. He wanted to be a police officer when he grew up. Not in the power tripping way, but he genuinely wanted to save people, to help people, do some good for humanity and for the community. He was overall a really, really good boy. I mean, his dad didn't think so. Lucas was not the golden child like George. His brother Daniel was. If you walked into Lucas's dad's house, you might think that he only has one son. Lucas was like the forgotten middle kid that just drifted around. Anyway, while Lucas is in his senior year of high school, he's thinking, why not get a job? That way I can have, you know, a couple extra dollars to go on mission trips and, you know, volunteer. He starts working at the telemarketing firm and he runs into George. Now, at first, the two don't get along. Lucas thought George was obnoxious and clearly living a sinful, godless life. He for sure was going to hell and Lucas is not going with him. Meanwhile, George thought Lucas was a boring loser that was too devoted to his sky daddy. But for some reason, George wanted to befriend Lucas. Now, I don't know if he just wanted a coworker to boss around under this guise of being a best friend or if he was bored or if he was lonely. It's hard to say. But George put all of his energy into making Lucas like him. It worked. It was almost too easy. The first day that George introduced Lucas to other people as his best friend. From that day forward, Lucas was freaking hooked. He had always craved attention. He thought that George was special once he got to know him. George had such an interesting life. He was into martial arts. He got into fights. He defended good people. He was a cool dude. George would tell him, hey, it's your senior year. If anyone ever bullies you in school, call me. I'll beat him up. I know Taekwondo. Lucas would grin ear to ear. He just finally felt recognized. Someone who liked him enough and would fight for him. That was a lot. He had never felt that before. So Lucas starts spending more and more time with George at Becky's house. And let's just say George is not a good influence at all. He's literally every parent's nightmare. George wanted Lucas to smoke pot, drink beer with him, and even dabble in LSD. And this is so strange, but George would just plop on the couch and force Lucas to watch porn with him. Like super kinky, bondage, intense porn. And when that got them riled up, George would say, Lucas, Lucas, are you bored? Let's just go throw rocks at random people's cars. And they did. I don't even know how this is remotely fun, but they got a giggle out of it. And they were promptly arrested and fined. And as much as George was a shitty influence, he was a shitty friend. He would sit there and laugh and say, I can't believe you're a virgin. You know what that means, right? <laughs> that means you're a insert homophobic slur. Because you've never had a girlfriend. That's what that means. And he would laugh. 
Hey, hey, why are you so down? Are you know I'm just messing around? It's all a joke. You know what? I can get my girl Becky to set you up with someone so you can lose your virginity and stop being a loser. It's embarrassing that my best friend is a virgin. Like you're a loser, but I can help you. So does he still want to say for marriage? Yeah. Or? Lucas oh. is like, no, 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 I don't like this. Okay, okay. But George is just steamrolling him, just running over him and saying, now you got it, you're a loser. Eventually, Becky's friend Angela agrees to have sex with Lucas. So then it's settled. The four of them, George and his girlfriend Becky, Becky's friend Angela, and Lucas were going to rent a hotel room, one room with two double beds, and they were going to get drunk and have sex. George and Becky just start going at it. They're dry humping on one of the beds. Well, are you guys just going to watch? Go do your thing on the next bed. Angela's like, I'm down. And Lucas felt so embarrassed, he ran out of the room. His entire face was bright red. Even when he got back, he refused to sleep on the same bed as Angela. And instead, he dozed off on the floor. Angela wasn't offended. But she said, I can't really be with someone that doesn't believe in premarital sex. So I got to go. And do you think that George has any right to be mad? No. Mad that Lucas didn't consent to sleep with someone? No, right? But he was. I'm telling you, very shitty friend. George would yell at him. I can't believe after everything I've done for you, you can't even sleep with her. You made me a laughing stock. You're lucky I'm still friends with you. It's just so embarrassing being best friends with a virgin. I'm trying to find a girl that will do the impossible with you. You know that no other girl is going to find you attractive if I didn't convince them. God, Lucas. George would even make fun of Lucas's penis size. Listen, I don't want to speculate, but George is too suspiciously into Lucas's virginity and the size of his penis. It's a lot. Anyway, finally, Lucas leaves Colorado for college in California, and it seems like being away from George was going to be good for him. It was. Lucas was finding bits of his old self again. He was volunteering, giving haircuts to people without homes. He went on more mission trips. His fellow students and teachers talked about how well Lucas got along with everyone. He was kind of like the glue of any social group. Just a nice guy. His grades were lacking, though, and he was put on academic probation. And that summer, he went back to live with George. And Becky hated it. Hated it all. So she took her kid and she moved out. George literally didn't care. He didn't care to pay child support. He didn't even care to see his kid. But he used this event and spun a story to make himself look good. He told Lucas, Becky left. Becky left because she was fed up with you, constantly leaving the toilet seat up. It's your fault. And because I'm a good best friend, I covered for you. I said it was me that kept doing it, and she was pissed, and she left me. She said, I can't be with someone that can't even put their toilet seat down. And I'm fucking heartbroken. She won't even let me see my kid. George would tell any girl that he came across, I'm sad, I'm traumatized, I'm a broken man. My girlfriend left and won't even let me see my kid. She's evil. I pay her every single month child support because I want the best for my kid. And it worked. George would win a lot of sympathy and ultimately he would get laid, which is what he wanted. So now we got George and Lucas living the bachelor life. They just waste their days away, drinking, taking drugs, watching porn. Lucas said during this time, George started gravitating from just kinky porn to wanting to watch violent rape scenes and even snuff films. He was obsessed with anything and everything sex. He made a game of trying to catch Lucas masturbating at night which is just so odd. He would burst into the room. Ah, gotcha. Let me see the penis. Sometimes he would burst in on Lucas in the bathroom. George would sometimes put on a skimpy bikini and dance around the apartment. Lucas, look at me. Look at me dancing. Look at me shaking my butt. And if Lucas even 
remotely looked in that direction, George would sit down and berate him for being an insert homophobic slur. And then he would force Lucas to watch porn with him. Again, I'm just saying, I don't know. I feel like George likes Lucas and is suppressing it or something. He keeps wanting to see him lose his virginity, wants to catch him masturbating. None of this is normal friend behavior. George would also bring home new girls and have sex with them in front of Lucas. It's hard to say whether or not George wanted to make a carbon copy of himself, mold Lucas into a mini George, or if he wanted to fuck him, or both, honestly. I don't know. Regardless, it was working. Lucas starts drinking, he stops going to church, and instead, he filled his Sundays with violent graphic porn. He also tried to get on George's good side by shit-talking literally any woman in their lives. How they're all bitches, fucking females. And just like that, summer break goes by. And Lucas is heading off for his second year in California. Now that meant George had to find another friend, a replacement. His name was James. And George was really laying it on thick, talking about how he had a million dollars in the bank and how Becky had stolen $60,000 from him when she left. Now let's be real, it was clearly all lies. Nobody believed him. James just remembered a few odd things during his time with George. George loved to act out gay stereotypes and try to hit on James. But then he would try to poke fun and say, James, you're so gay. Okay. It's just so strange. I mean, we're all thinking the same thing, right? George is secretly gay and has some weird toxic masculinity associated with his sexuality. That's kind of what we're thinking, no? James also remembered George would not shut up about Lucas, how Lucas was a bum and a loser and a virgin. But you, James, you're a real friend. Oh, and George would watch his favorite movie on repeat. It's called Clockwork Orange. It's a bit of a controversial movie. I'll give you a quick summary. It's about a guy named Alex, who's this leader of this big gang. And because he's in a gang, the movie just really ups the ante with the violence, the gore, the pain. There's just always bloody fight scenes, bloody rape scenes. George's all-time favorite scene, though, is when Alex and his gang, they beat up a dude practically to death. He's like alive, conscious, but he's beaten badly. And then they rape his wife in front of him. And he loves it. He wants to recreate that scene. He would talk to his friends about how he would kidnap a couple, beat the boyfriend until he was nearly dead, and rape the girlfriend in front of him. How that was his fantasy. And in the film, Alex gets caught, and he has to undergo a new form of psychotherapy. Essentially, Alex gets brainwashed into becoming a normal, nonviolent person. He's released from prison and lives his life normally, without ever thinking about being violent ever again. Now, the question of the movie is... Is Alex's free will suppressed since he's literally been brainwashed? The moral question lies in, if we had some sort of therapy to make everyone follow the law, would it be against people's free will to have them undergo the therapy? Which is honestly a fascinating question. What are your thoughts, right? But that's not the controversial part of the movie. The controversy lies in the fact that, okay, we get it. Gangs get into fights and they rape women. But why did you have to make the whole movie just about violent gore and these violent scenes against women being the most prevalent part? That was kind of the controversy. Like you could have gotten the point across without all of that. The film is so disturbing, it's banned in several countries. But all those scenes were precisely why George loved the movie. He didn't give a shit about the actual movie. He didn't give a shit about the thought-provoking questions that left at the end. He just fast-forwarded to the violent rape scenes. George even called rape, and I quote, the old in-out, in-out. I don't even know. James quickly realized Clockwork Orange was not just a movie for George. It was a sick fantasy. Whenever James and George went out, George would point at random girls and whisper, hey, you want to kidnap her and rape her? 
James would just brush it off. The first few times he'd happened, he thought it was a sick joke. Dark humor at its worst, right? But after a while, James started wondering, wait, is this guy for real? George always talked about how he wanted sex with women that would, and I quote, put up a fight. And he said, it's no fun getting it from someone who will just give it up. Whenever a girl hit on George, he hated it. He didn't care for her. He said, it's no fun when she's actually into it. Side note, around this time, George gets a new girlfriend named Lori, and he ends up moving in with her because he can't really afford his own place. And George is great at turning on the charm at first. He's this nice guy. I mean, Lori had, was raped when she was 15. So he started the relationship acting as if he was this guy that cared about her healing, that cared so deeply for her, was, had this soul connection that he wanted to protect her and to really mend her broken heart. He was affectionate. He bought her gifts. He took her places. But as soon as she fell in love, he flipped a switch. He starts degrading her, humiliating her in front of her friends and family about her looks. He accused her of cheating on him all the time. And oddly, he wanted her to match his outfit. I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking Disney couple. No, not that. Not just in color. Like, oh, you wear jeans and a white shirt and I'll wear jeans and a white shirt. But if he was wearing basketball shorts and a big loose t-shirt of his, she would have to wear his basketball shorts and a corresponding big t-shirt of his. Which again, nothing is wrong with dressing like that. But with everything that we've already talked about, it's almost like George wants to create a mini me mm-hmm. in his partners and his friends. It's, it's just weird. George also constantly called all women bitches and whores. He manipulated Lori into having anal sex with him. And all the while, he's talking to Lori's sister's boyfriend. I know. Wait, okay. what? So Lori's sister, right? His girlfriend's sister has uh-huh. a boyfriend and he's trying to be friends with him. His name's Derek. He's like, hey, Derek. Now, if you're going to be scum of the earth, Maybe you would show people like Lucas and James, people that have nothing to do with your girlfriend. But would you ever dare show that side to your girlfriend's sister's boyfriend? Because that guy's going to tell the sister. The sister's going to tell your girlfriend, no? Yeah. It just would be against your best interest. But he would always say, hey, you want to go beat up some punks and some chicks? And what did he say? He would shut it down and George would laugh and be like, bro, calm down. It's a freaking joke, you know? I'm just trying to see your reaction. Anyway, did you know my friend from California is a fucking virgin? (laughs) Fucking loser, am I right? Maybe Lori can have sex with him. Fix the problem. So he suggested that his own girlfriend have sex with Lucas. And she was distraught. She was also more distraught when she found out that George was cheating on her. She was so devastated, she tried to kill herself by taking an overdose of pills. And George did not care. He left Lori and moved in with his new girlfriend. But of course, he used Lori's attempted suicide as an excuse for... Quite literally, everything. Late for work? Sorry, boss. Going through a rough time. My ex-girlfriend just tried to kill herself. Sorry for speeding, officer. My ex-girlfriend just tried to commit suicide. It's been a lot recently. The audacity. I can't even. Now, Lucas comes back, and he's developed his own fetish during his time away. So the first time he left from George, he's, you know, getting back to his groove, volunteering and stuff. The second time, he comes back a little weird. Lucas becomes obsessed with heels, red heels. He would buy them and masturbate while holding the heel up against his penis. But what's worse than that, this part is not a fetish, but um, a crime. Lucas started fantasizing about having sex with, no, raping nine-year-olds. Lucas also started cursing, and it was almost so forced it was... Practically every other word in every sentence he said. It was overkill. 
he stopped talking about God and helping people. And he would just sit there and talk about sex. That was the only thing on his mind. He loved making fun of women, calling them derogatory names, and just constantly thinking about sex. So now with this new and changed Lucas, the two start going wild. Let me give you an example. One time they see a woman having car trouble. She couldn't get her car to start. George approaches her and is like, hey, you need some help? Listen, neither George nor Lucas knew anything about cars, but that didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. The young woman was attractive and that's all they cared about. She declined the offer. No thanks, I got it. And as she's walking off, George nudges to Lucas. Let's rape her. Lucas is shocked and George notices. And of course he tries to play it off as a joke. Lucas, I'm just messing with you. God, California made you so stuck up. And Lucas said at that time, he felt partially disappointed and partially relieved. The next day, George married his girlfriend, Bonnie. Yeah, and things really just start going downhill from there. Lucas couldn't go back to school because of his grades, so his dad ends up giving him a job at the company he owns. It's called Motorcycle Accessories Warehouse. Lucas gets a company car he can drive. Even George is given a job there. They're all working for Lucas's dad. Everyone at work hated the two, especially the woman. They were too scared to complain, though, since it's the boss's son. Also, side note, they said that George and Lucas would be sitting on opposite sides of the warehouse and would just intensely stare at each other. Like, not smiling, not making faces and giggling, just intensely staring. Like, they're into each other? They didn't say it was like an intense stare of, like, undressing each other, but it was just so intense, it was weird. Yeah. Are they into each other? Do they hate each other and want to kill each other? Are they giving each other the death stare? We don't know. Lucas would also make incredibly inappropriate comments regarding his female coworkers. He talked about how he needed new bitches to have sex with. By the way, Lucas is still a virgin. But he loves saying things like find him, fuck him, and forget him. What happened? That's so strange. Yeah. I guess. Is he trying to impress the other kid? I think that and maybe he's getting so pent up that it's turning into aggression. I'm not really sure because even though he's I mean he's always wanted to impress George I don't know what that shift is that's why I was telling you I don't see the progression and it's terrifying Mm. I don't really know what happened like what clicked in his brain that was like oh my god now that was his new motto in life about women or I guess females and if his coworkers ever pissed him off he would just say I'll have you fat bitches fired these remarks actually got him fired so his dad told him to leave Now, without a job, Lucas would spend all of his days with George and Bonnie, and they would just watch porn videos like they were sitcoms. Just constantly, whatever they were doing, porn was in the background. Lucas starts getting incredibly sexually frustrated. On top of that, George and Bonnie would constantly have loud sex in front of him, sometimes in the room, like just everywhere. All Lucas could think about was sex. George even suggested, you seem tense. Why don't we go looking for a victim? For the old in-out, in-out. Lucas Agreed. And the two of them start planning out a brutal rape. At least five to six times a day, they would talk about it. Discuss it in great detail. How to do it, find the perfect victim, how to not get caught. They settled on the fact that in order to minimize the risk of getting arrested, they would have to murder their victim. It was the only way. They would people watch. George would lean over and whisper in Lucas's ear, You could fuck her pussy and I'll fuck her ass. Lucas would eagerly nod. But they couldn't find a good opportunity. There were always too many witnesses. For months, they tried to kidnap and rape someone, and always a person or a man would appear out of nowhere. They came close a few times, though. Once they were driving down a residential road, and they see this little girl 
walking on the sidewalk. They roll down their window and they say, hey, you need a ride? And she's thinking, what the heck? Creep, stranger danger, and immediately starts running away. Thankfully, they didn't chase her, but they did fantasize about how they would have raped her. They even put a steak knife in their glove box just in case. They were prowling the clubs for a victim, but since there were always too many witnesses, they started frequenting a nice jogging area called Garden of the Gods. A lot of women would jog there by themselves. It was perfect for them to find a victim. They had a plan. They would find a woman that they wanted to rape, lightly hit her with their car, and she would be probably sprawled out on the pavement in pain, and they would pretend to help her, but in reality, they would just drag her, shocked, confused, and injured, into the car where they would take turns raping her. And that's exactly what they attempted to do. They spotted a young girl around, probably in her late teens, potentially underage. This is at 3 in the afternoon, by the way. And they thought, okay, she's perfect. She's blonde. 3 p.m., yeah. She's perfect. She's blonde. They loved blonde girls. All we have to do is hit her lightly with the car and, like we said, pretend to help her. George was driving. He purposely pulls over into the bicycle lane and hits the girl. She flies forward and she's now sprawled out on the side of the road. And immediately George jumps out. Are you okay? Are you okay? Lucas, for some reason, is hesitant to approach. He just seems stunned. 18-year-old Amber Gonzalez was not scared. She was fucking pissed. She only had superficial wounds on her knees and her arms. Thank God. But she was angry. What the hell were you doing? I was running in the bike lane. I'm not even close to the road. What the fuck is wrong with you? And George ignored her and just kept asking, are you all right? Are you all right? And tried to grab her arms for the injuries. Do you need a ride to the hospital? No, my dad's a park ranger. And if you want to help, you can help me find my $200 sunglasses that flew off my head. George gave up trying to convince her and figured it wasn't worth the trouble if her dad really was a park ranger. So the two guys made a whole deal of trying to look for the sunglasses and they get back into the car. And at first, George pretended to be pissed off that Lucas didn't help pull through. Why were you being so scared? Just throw her in the car next time. But they quickly get over it and they start giggling instead. Did you see the look on her face? She was so scared. The same day, they would find their victim. Well, not before they tried raping Bonnie's friend. Yeah, George's girlfriend and the mother of his child, her friend. They tried to rape her. They tried to kidnap her. They're like, hey, Rachel, do you need a ride home? It's late at night. She's like, no, why do I need a ride home from you guys? I'm fine. No, we insist we can take you home. She kept saying no. The energy was weird. They headed out that night pent up and angry. They were like, why didn't she just say yes? Why doesn't she just trust us? They go to the clubs. They're met with failure, no success. And they were really annoyed. And on their way home, they're trying to comfort themselves. It's okay. We can always try tomorrow. It'll be fine. And at the red light, they glance over to their right. And they see a small red car waiting at the light with them, like just a random car. And the driver was a blonde, pretty young woman. Should we follow her? Yeah, let's do it. But first, I have to tell you about the banana gun. Jackson's story starts with a banana gun and a close potential police shootout. So let me explain. Jackson is the woman in the red car. Now, Peggy and Jake are her parents. And when they met, they were really young. Peggy thought that Jake was a nice guy, but it was all a facade. Once they move in together, she realized he was a drug addict, a drug dealer. He drank a lot. He did drugs all the time. He was paranoid. He thought everybody was out to kill him. And when he was on drugs, he was the most abusive person Peggy knew. When he was sober, he was the kindest person she knew. And in the midst of Jake's struggles with drugs and their rocky relationship, Peggy gets pregnant. And she's thinking, well, maybe this baby's going to change him. Maybe it'll be good for the relationship. A little, right? It wasn't. Jake felt more trapped than ever. He felt suffocated by his responsibilities. And the baby wasn't even born yet. 
So one night, Jake comes home angry and he just starts punching holes in the wall. What are you doing, Jake? Please stop. Stop or I have to call the police. You're scaring me. He didn't stop. He keeps going. So pregnant Peggy calls the police and they come outside and they have their guns drawn. Is this a hostage situation? We don't know. Jake yells out to them, I have a gun and I'm not leaving this house. Jake actually didn't have a gun. He rushes into the kitchen and grabs a banana. He paints it black with a Sharpie. So he has his fruit gun and he grabs a bunch of kitchen knives and he runs out the front door to confront the police. This is like in the dead of night. He's holding the banana like it's a gun. And it's a wonder that he's not killed. He's surrounded by cops, many of them who had their guns drawn and ready to fire. Peggy thought that Jake wanted to commit suicide by cop. And he almost succeeded. She ran out yelling, it's not a gun. Jake, look at me, please. Jake, put the banana down. Jake puts the banana down and he was arrested. He promised to change, but it did not last long. He was high out of his mind, even in the delivery room when his child is being born. And they soon were divorced. Peggy finds a new husband, Bob. And Bob fell in love with not only Peggy, but baby Jackson as well. And they honestly had a really cute family. Like they genuinely got their life together. Jackson was hard not to love. She was headstrong, incredibly fun to be around. Growing up, Jackson, she loved sports. She was amazing at swimming. She was the star of the soccer team. People said she was a natural born leader. She had something in her. She could hype up her classmates. She could hype up her teammates. If there was a new girl on the team, a lot of the times the other girls, yeah, you feel a little threatened. But not Jackson. She would take her in, lift her up, and her teammates had no choice but to follow her lead. She was the type of teammate and classmate and friend that would never forget your birthday, even though you just mentioned it in passing just once. She would bring a birthday cake for you even when everyone else forgot. She really was beautiful from the inside and out. She had this beautiful blonde hair and these blue eyes, and people said there was just this sweetness to her smile. So when she's in her senior year, something traumatic happens. Her biological dad, Jake, the banana guy, he ends up getting cancer. It's terminal. He has six months to live. Now, up until this point, Jackson knew what happened with Jake. They never were a part of each other's lives. She grew up with her stepdad. She thought that he didn't want to be a part of her life, and she was right. But she's thinking, he's going to die soon. I should be there for him and try to get to know him. For six months, she got to know her biological dad. But not only that, he had nobody in his life. So for six months, she... Helped him eat, cooked for him, cleaned him up, helped him take his meds, kept him company. He honestly did not deserve her. Jake would eventually die, and Jackson's heart felt like it was being ripped to shreds. She watched him in the last days, painfully coughing up blood, and the whole thing just took a toll on her. And so with this broken heart, she enters into a relationship with a guy named Mike Lemon. I don't know why, but that name is scary. Mike Lemon was a sour dude. Just really bad news. A rotten lemon. He was a cop, and a bad cop for sure, and he was just a huge asshole to begin with. He wanted Jackson to pay for everything, but he was the one calling the shots. Like, he would choose where to eat, what to order, not just for himself, but for Jackson, and then expect her to pick up the tab. It was weird. She would just sometimes straight up hand him money whenever he demanded it. He was manipulative, controlling, a douchebag. He tried to separate her from her family, which is a classic abuse strategy. Jackson's parents hated him. But there was no stopping her. She's young and in love and she's blinded by the fake facade that Mike Lemon was showing her. Anytime Jackson did get fed up, she would break up with him and he would have this sob story of how he has cancer and how it's terminal. Just playing into Jackson's trauma with her biological dad's cancer. Wow. Yeah. But the relationship ended when he asked her for a trip to Mexico. Probably his last trip ever because he has cancer. 
I say it like that because let's be real. He doesn't have cancer. She paid for everything. And right when they landed, he said, fuck off. I never want to see you again. He stayed in the hotel room that she paid for, probably hanging out and meeting other girls. So Jaxine is devastated. She gets back home. She tries to throw herself into giving back and volunteering. She even started dating this new guy named Tim. And that's where she was headed, to Tim's apartment, when she was stopped at a red light next to Lucas and George. She had no idea that they tailed her all the way to the apartment complex where Tim lived. She got out of the car, walked to the security door to be buzzed into the building. Now, this isn't super late at night. It's also not a desolate area. It's a huge apartment complex. So when she sees two guys walking up behind her and they're casually talking, their demeanor is not creepy. She thought they probably live here or they came to see someone. But then suddenly she feels herself being yanked from behind. George had grabbed her by the waist and put his hand over her mouth. Lucas is trying to pick up her legs and they start pulling. She's grabbing onto the door handles for dear life, but it's not opening because it's locked. Jaxine is screaming for help and a ton of people hear her, pop their head out their windows, only to see two men dragging her into the car. Jaxine tries to hold onto the doors for dear life, but Lucas at one point raises his hands above his head, clasped together, like his hands are clasped together. He's holding onto himself and he essentially karate chops, smashes his arms down onto Jaxine's arms and it broke her grip. The residents see George punching Jaxine over and over again in the face while holding her down to try to get her to comply. Residents are screaming. A lot of them are calling 911, screaming, I'm calling the cops. They're running downstairs to stop them, but they were too late. They have no fear of people seeing them or... Yeah, that's another part that like just is so terrifying. Again, this is not... And not that it would be anybody's fault except for the two killers or the kidnappers, but it's not a desolate parking lot where nobody's in sight. Imagine a Saturday night at a busy apartment complex. People are walking around. People are going out to the clubs. They're getting into their cars. People are coming over. People are eating dinner on their balcony. And imagine you see this. The police arrive and the residents found Jaxine's wallet found on the ground during the struggle. They give the license plates and it was easy to track the car back to Lucas. The police were told by Bob Solomon, Lucas's dad, that if the police wanted to see Lucas, he was probably hanging out at George's. Now, the police get there and George and Lucas were there. This is a few hours later. They didn't even try to play dumb. They were like, kidnapped woman? What? That's what? No, not us. Instead, Lucas said, yeah, go ahead. Search the car. Wait, they confessed to it? Yeah. In the car, in the trunk, they find Jackson's sweater with smeared blood and a steak knife with blood all over it. The blade of the knife was bent. There were droplets of blood in the trunk and Lucas's Bible in the back seat. Lucas looked at them and said, oh yeah, we stabbed a girl. And he said it so casually. That's it, no emotion. Yeah, we stabbed a girl. I think most people would admit to running a red light with more passion than this. And with that, Lucas offered to take the police to where the body was. They get to Foothills Elementary School. And Jaxine's body is found underneath a white van. She was naked, lying on the cold pavement. And by the time that the police got there, it was too late. She was cold, no heartbeat, and she was dead. George and Lucas sat there in the police interrogation room, telling the investigators step by step on what they did with zero remorse and zero emotion. Jaxine's death was one of the most gruesome cases that the detectives had ever worked on. They claimed that once Jaxine was in the car, They drove around trying to figure out what to do with her. She's screaming and begging them in the back, begging them not to hurt her. The two monsters said they talked about raping her, but they kept saying to the police they contemplated having sex with her as if it was consensual. 
George claimed it wasn't rape because under George's threats and then wielding a steak knife, Jackson took off her own pants when she was ordered to. And she manually stimulated him because he was unable to have an erection, which he ordered her to do. He argued that this made it consensual. They took turns raping her. Lucas claims the whole time she was begging them not to hurt her. Afterward, and this is in the elementary school parking lot that they're raping her. Afterward, they opened the door, and in the barren parking lot of the elementary school, they forced Jackson to get out naked and lay on the cold pavement next to the car. They threw her shirt over her head so she couldn't see, and for 20 minutes, they pretended she wasn't there and debated how to kill her, as if they were in some sort of debate team, and Jackseine was the audience. They were literally standing there going, no, maybe we should stab her, but will you stab her first because I don't really want to do the first stab. How many times do you think we need to stab her for her to die? I think like three. Like this casually. I can't imagine the fear that was running through Jackson at that time. Eventually, George grabbed the knife, lifted Jackson's head up by her hair. Her face was still covered by the shirt, but her neck was exposed. Lucas put the knife on her throat and cut about seven inches across her neck. She didn't scream. She just made a light moaning noise. They could tell that she was alive and she was breathing. Okay, roll over on your back. Jackson did as she was told because she was hoping the torture would end. Maybe she could pretend to be dead. George grabbed the knife and cut her throat a second time. She didn't scream, and the two guys stood there, genuinely confused. How does slashing her neck twice not kill her? I mean, that's how it works in the movies. And they're talking about it like this. Not like, oh my god, she's not dead, what do we do? But more like, huh, I really thought that that would kill her. The truth is, they didn't realize that they were completely inept, incompetent, disgusting monsters. They were good for nothing, literally. Pulling a victim's head back actually causes the major blood vessels to recede. And therefore, in Jackson's case, they weren't severed. Pushing her head forward would have been more lethal. In this situation, what they did was cause a world of pain, but it wasn't exactly fatal, at least not immediately, but she was losing blood. So they continued to stand over her naked body and debate what to do next. And the whole time, it's with such a calm flat tone as if they're talking about where to grab dinner there was no panic no emotion nothing the two decide that they use the steak knife to stab her chest over and over taking turns they would bring the knife level with their mouths and forcefully jam it onto where they believe jackson's heart was each time she screamed a faint scream despite these injuries jackson was still alive she was moaning moving her hands they stabbed her over five times near the heart her throat had been slit twice but the killers weren't done they knew she was still breathing, but they couldn't stab her anymore. Not because each time they did it, blood splattered everywhere on them on the pavement, which it did. They just didn't care. They didn't want to stab her again because their knife was bent. So they thought, why not smother her? They start stuffing her shirt into her mouth, but Jackson was fighting for her life. She lifted up her hands weakly to try to fight them off. But George cut her wrists with the knife and they were shocked that she was still alive. The first cut was superficial. The second cut on her wrist was so deep it nearly amputated her hand. They decided that they would have to accelerate her death. They forced Jackson to put her hands on her stomach. Lucas smashed her shirt into her mouth and George got up and stood on Jackson's hands on her stomach and started jumping to press the air out of her so she would suffocate quicker. At this point, her hand has nearly been amputated. George is jumping on her hands on her stomach. She was stabbed five plus times, raped, and had her throat slit twice. I don't even know how to describe the depravity, 
the evil that's in these two, it's, it's hard to even consider them human. I mean, they're not human. And with this, Jackson stopped breathing. She was dead. And she didn't suffocate. She died from prolonged torture. Her wounds weren't initially fatal, but the jumping of the stomach accelerated blood loss. But the two weren't done. They were worried that since they raped her, their DNA was in her. So they stood there debating, should we dismember her and take her private parts home to get rid of the evidence? But the knife is too dull. So instead, they took turns shoving mud into her private area. They filled her with mud. They thought it would destroy the semen samples. And they were wrong. Experts were still able to retrieve traces of semen. Then the two picked her up. Lucas picked up her legs and George grabbed her hair. And they swung her under a nearby van and kept pushing her until she was somewhat concealed. They wiped their hands on Jackson's bloody sweatshirt, threw it in the trunk with the knife, and while driving off, Lucas looked at George and said, Hey, at least I'm not a virgin anymore. And they high-fived each other. So the two of them, they're taken in, questioned, they immediately confess, and they immediately start shifting the blame on each other. The story of what happened was consistent, but George said Lucas wanted to do it because he wanted to lose his virginity. Lucas said it was George's idea. They were playing the blame game, as if they would be in less trouble if the other person brought up the idea first. Like, no, you still raped and killed someone. It doesn't matter whose idea it was. George showed the most emotion for his Egg McMuffin, and also when he thought about going to jail. He said, nothing this bad has ever happened to me before. Killing her was the worst experience of my life. They were tried separately, and Colorado was seeking the death penalty. Now, this is infuriating. The defense for Lucas filed a motion saying that the prosecutors should not be allowed to show any photos of Jacqueline while she was alive. Photos that would humanize her. And the judge fucking granted the motion. I'm so angry. I can't even describe to you how I felt when I... How? How is that even an argument? That's the whole... That's murder. That's what murder is. You took someone that was alive and you ended their life. So how is that? And I don't understand. I will never understand. So during Lucas's trial, his attorney set up a four foot by five foot poster of Lucas and George. It was a picture of them taken at a party. George is in the front, confident, smirking, and Lucas is in the back, shyly smiling. This stayed up in front of the jury the whole time. But the prosecutors could not show a picture of Jackson, the victim. I'm sorry, what? Lucas's attorney wanted to argue with this picture that Lucas was the sideshow, a mindless follower, and George was the one with the idea. He was the one calling the shots. They argued that when Lucas met George, he finally found a friend and would endure any humiliation just to keep the friendship. Just to keep the friendship. Side note, it came out during trials that Lucas also showed anger to his dad for firing him for sexual harassment. He said, why didn't my dad just fire the woman that led him on? Lucas told the court he was rebuilding his relationship with God and was praying for both George and Jackson and hoped that some good would come out of this. He also claimed that Jackson's death was predestined. He said, what I did was wrong, but there was nothing I could have done to prevent it. Jackson was predestined to be raped and murdered. As bad as it sounds, it was God's will for Jackson to die. It happened regardless of what I wanted. Everybody dies and it's not right to question God. He went on to say about his experience of raping Jackson, I feel guilty about any pleasure that I have at the memory of sex with her. Of sex with her, implying it's consensual and not rape. He admitted to masturbating in jail and fantasizing about the rape of Jackson, but he fantasized it wasn't rape, it was just sex. 
that they had gone on a date and did it in the car after. Who cares? Yeah. Why, why would that even matter? Like, everybody knows what you did and you killed her. He's trying to argue that he never wanted to rape anyone. He just wanted to have sex and he was so sexually frustrated. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Well, I guess maybe they did because in the end, Lucas was given life in prison, not the death penalty. And like, listen, I'm not trying to have a moral debate, but I'm just saying that was like the maximum punishment they were going for. So he got life in prison with no parole. George's trial was next. And of course, his attorneys tried everything under the sun to try to make up excuses. They actually tried to argue that he had a, a calcium deficit in his brain or a calcium deposit in his brain, which caused him to do this. They also tried to blame violent video games and movies. They were just throwing anything, hoping it would stick. It didn't stick. George was sentenced to death, but he will never be executed. February of 2003, the Colorado Supreme Court ordered George be resentenced to life in prison. Both of them are still in prison and are now in their 40s, which honestly is incredibly young and mm -hmm. terrifying. And that's the story of George and Lucas. I don't like these questions because I don't want it to seem as if these are good people that just found themselves in a shitty situation. But do you think that they would have killed someone without meeting each other? Do you think this was a fatal friendship or do you think that they would have gone on and still committed? Yeah, because you're saying George was um, pressuring, was yeah. it James? The other guy. Oh, James. James, yeah. yeah. Like, let's kidnap this woman. Mm -hmm. I hope you guys stay safe and I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.